0: Section 25 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 28, The Close of the War, Part 1. On February 15, 1855, Lord Palmerston wrote to his brother, A month ago, if any man had asked me to say what was one of the most improbable events, I should have said, my being Prime Minister. Aberdeen was there, Darby was head of one great party, John Russell of the other, and yet, in about ten days' time, they all gave way like straws before the wind, and so, here am I writing to you from Downing Street as First Lord of the Treasury. No doubt Lord Palmerston was sincere in the expression of surprise which we have quoted, but there were not many other men in the country who felt in the least astonished at the turn of events by which he had become prime minister. Indeed, it had long become apparent to almost everyone that his assuming that place was only a question of time. The country was in that mood that it would absolutely have somebody at the head of affairs who knew his own mind and saw his way clearly before him. When the coalition ministry broke down, Lord Derby was invited by the Queen to form a government. He tried and failed. He did all in his power to accomplish the task with which the Queen had entrusted him. He invited Lord Palmerston to join him, and it was intimated that if Palmerston consented, Mr. Disraeli would waive all claim to the leadership of the House of Commons in order that Palmerston should have that place. Lord Derby also offered through Lord Palmerston places in his administration to Mr. Gladstone and Mr. Sidney Herbert. Palmerston did not see his way to join a Derby administration, and without him, Lord Derby could not go on. The Queen then sent for Lord John Russell, but Russell's late and precipitate retreat from his office had discredited him with most of his former colleagues, and he found that he could not get a government together. Lord Palmerston was then, to use his own phrase, l'inevitable. There was not much change in the personnel of the ministry. Lord Aberdeen was gone and Lord Palmerston took his place, and Lord Panmure, who had formerly as Fox Mall administered the affairs of the army, succeeded the Duke of Newcastle. Lord Panmure, however, combined in his own person the functions up to that time absurdly separated of secretary at war and secretary for war. The secretary at war under the old system was not one of the principal secretaries of state. He was merely the officer by whom the regular communication was kept up between the war office and the ministry, and has been described as the civil officer of the army. The secretary for war was commonly entrusted with the colonial department as well. The two war offices were now made into one. It was hoped by this change great benefit would come to our whole army system, Lord Palmerston acted energetically, too, in sending out a sanitary commission to the Crimea and a commission to superintend the commissariat, a department that almost more than any other had broken down. Nothing could be more strenuous than the terms in which Lord Palmerston recommended the sanitary commission to Lord Raglan. He requested that Lord Raglan would give the commissioners every assistance in his power. They will, of course, be opposed and thwarted by the medical officers, by the men who have charge of the port arrangements, and by those who have the cleaning of the camp. Their mission will be ridiculed and their recommendations and directions set aside, unless enforced by the peremptory exercise of your authority. But that authority I must request you to exert in the most peremptory manner for the immediate and exact carrying into execution whatever changes of arrangement they may recommend, for these are matters on which depend the health and lives of many hundreds of men, I may indeed say, of thousands. Lord Palmerston was strongly pressed by some of the more strenuous reformers of the house. Mr. Layard, who had acquired some celebrity before in a very different field, as a discoverer, that is to say, in the ruins of Nineveh and Babylon, was energetic and incessant in his attacks on the administration of the war, and was not disposed, even now, to give the new government a moment's rest. Mr. Laird was a man of a certain rough ability, immense self-sufficiency, and indomitable egotism. He was not in any sense an eloquent speaker, he was singularly wanting in all the graces of style and manner, but he was fluent, he was vociferous, He never seemed to have a moment's doubt on any conceivable question. He never admitted that there could by any possibility be two sides to any matter of discussion. He did really know a great deal about the East at a time when the habit of traveling in the East was comparatively rare. He stamped down all doubt or difference of view with the overbearing dogmatism of Sir Walter Scott's touchwood, or of the proverbial man who has been there and ought to know." and he was in many respects admirably fitted to be the spokesman of all those, and they were not a few, who saw that things had been going wrong without exactly seeing why, and were eager that something should be done, although they did not clearly know what. Lord Palmerston strove to induce the House not to press for the appointment of the committee recommended in Mr. Roebuck's motion. The government, he said, would make the needful inquiries themselves he reminded the House of Richard II's offer to lead the men of the fallen Tylers' insurrection himself, and in the same spirit he offered on the part of the government to take the lead in every necessary investigation. Mr. Roebuck, however, would not give way, and Lord Palmerston yielded to a demand which had undoubtedly the support of a vast force of public opinion. The constant argument of Mr. Layard had some sense in it. The government, now in office, was very much like the government in which the House had declared so lately that it had no confidence. It could hardly, therefore, be expected that the House should accept its existence as guarantee enough that everything should be done which its predecessor had failed to do. Lord Palmerston gave way, but his unavoidable concession brought on a new ministerial crisis. Sir James Graham, Mr. Gladstone, and Mr. Sidney Herbert— declined to hold office any longer. They had opposed the motion for an inquiry most gravely and strenuously, and they would not lend any countenance to it by remaining in office. Sir Charles Wood succeeded Sir James Graham as First Lord of the Admiralty. Lord John Russell took the place of Secretary of the Colonies, vacated by Sidney Herbert, and Sir George Cornwall Lewis followed Mr. Gladstone as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Meanwhile, new negotiations for peace set on foot under the influence of Austria had been begun at Vienna, and Lord John Russell had been sent there to represent the interests of England. The conference opened at Vienna under circumstances that might have seemed especially favourable to peace. We had got a new ally, a state not indeed commanding any great military strength, but full of energy and ambition and representing more than any other perhaps the tendencies of liberalism and the operation of the comparatively new principle of the rights of nationalities. This was the little kingdom of Sardinia, whose government was then under the control of one of the master spirits of modern politics, a man who belonged to the class of the Richelieu's and Orange Williams, the illustrious Count Cavour. Sardinia, it may be frankly said, did not come into the alliance because of any particular sympathies that she had with one side or the other of the quarrel between Russia and the Western powers. She went into the war in order that she might have a locus standi in the councils of Europe from which to set forth her grievances against Austria. In the marvelous history of the uprise of the Kingdom of Italy, there is a good deal over which to use the words of Carlyle, Moralities, not a few must shriek aloud. It would not be easy to defend on high moral principles the policy which struck into a war without any particular care for either side of the controversy, but only to serve an ulterior and personal, that is to say, national purpose. But regarding the policy merely by the light of its results, it must be owned that it was singularly successful and entirely justified the expectations of Cavour. The Crimean War laid the foundations of the Kingdom of Italy. That was one fact calculated to inspire hopes of a peace. The greater the number and strength of the Allies, the greater obviously the pressure upon Russia and the probability of her listening to reason. But there was another event of a very different nature, the effect of which seemed at first likely to be all in favour of peace. This was the death of the man whom the united public opinion of Europe regarded as the author of the war? On March 2, 1855, the Emperor Nicholas of Russia died of pulmonary apoplexy after an attack of influenza. In other days, it would have been said he had died of a broken heart. Perhaps the description would have been more strictly true than the terms of the medical report. It was doubtless the effect of utter disappointment of the wreck and ruin of hopes to which a life's ambition had been directed and a life's energy dedicated, which left that frame of adamant open to the sudden dart of sickness. One of the most remarkable illustrations of an artist's genius devoted to a political subject was the cartoon which appeared in Punch and which was called General Fevrier turned traitor. The Emperor Nicholas had boasted. That Russia had two generals on whom she could always rely, General Janvier and General Fevrier. And now the English artist represented General February, a skeleton in Russian uniform, turning traitor and laying his bony, ice cold hand on the heart of the sovereign and betraying him to the tomb. But indeed, it was not General February alone who doomed Nicholas to death. The Tsar died of broken hopes. Of the recklessness that comes from defeat and despair. He took no precautions against cold and exposure. He treated with a magnanimous disdain the remonstrances of his physicians and his friends. As of Max Piccolomini in Schiller's noble play, so of him, men whispered that he wished to die. The Alma was to him what Austerlitz was to Pitt. From the moment when the news of that defeat was announced to him, He no longer seemed to have hope of the campaign. He took the story of the defeat very much as Lord North took the surrender of Cornwallis, as if a bullet had struck him. Thenceforth, he was like one whom the old Scotch phrase would describe as Fay, one who moved, spoke, and lived under the shadow of coming death until the death came. The news of the sudden death of the Emperor created a profound sensation in England. Mr. Bright at Manchester, shortly after rebuked what he considered an ignoble levity in the manner of commenting on the event among some of the English journals, but it is right to say that, on the whole, nothing could have been more decorous and dignified than the manner in which the English public generally received the news that the country's great enemy was no more. At first there was, as we have said, a common impression— That Nicholas's son and successor, Alexander II, would be more anxious to make peace than his father had been. But this hope was soon gone. The new Tsar could not venture to show himself to his people in a less patriotic light than his predecessor. The prospects of the Allies were at the time remarkably gloomy. There must have seemed to the new Russian emperor considerable ground for the hope that disease and cold, and bad management would do more harm to the army of England at least than any Russian general could do. The conference at Vienna proved a failure, and even in some respects a fiasco. Lord John Russell, sent to Vienna as our representative, was instructed that the object he must hold in view was the admission of Turkey into the great family of European states. For this end, there were four principal points to be considered— the condition of the Danubian provinces, the free navigation of the Danube, the limitation of Russian supremacy in the Black Sea, and the independence of the port. It was on the attempt to limit Russian supremacy in the Black Sea that the negotiations became a failure. Russia would not consent to any proposal which would really have the desired effect. She would agree to an arrangement between Turkey and herself but this was exactly what the Western powers were determined not to allow. She declined to have the strength of her navy restricted and proposed as a counter-resolution that the Straits should be opened to the war flags of all nations, so that if Russia were strong as a naval power in the Black Sea, other powers might be just as strong if they thought fit. Lord Palmerston, in a letter to Lord John Russell, dryly characterized this proposition involving, as it would, the maintenance by England and France of permanent fleets in the Black Sea to counterbalance the fleet of Russia as a mauvaise plaisanterie. Lord Palmerston indeed believed no more in the sincerity of Austria throughout all these transactions than he did in that of Russia. The conference proved a total failure, and in its failure it involved a good deal of the reputation of Lord John Russell. Like the French representative, Monsieur Drouan de Louis, Lord John Russell had been taken by the proposals of Austria and had supported them in the first instance. But when the government at home would not have them, he was still induced to remain a member of the cabinet and even to condemn in the House of Commons the recommendations he had supported at Vienna. He was charged by Mr. Disraeli with having encouraged the Russian pretensions by declaring at a critical point of the negotiations That he was disposed to favor whatever arrangement would best preserve the honor of Russia. What has the representative of England, Mr. Disraeli indignantly asked, to do with the honor of Russia? Lord John Russell had indeed a fair reply. He could say with justice and good sense that no settlement was likely to be lasting which simply forced conditions upon a great power like Russia without taking any account of what is considered among nations to be her honor but he was not able to give any satisfactory explanation of his having approved the conditions in Vienna, which he afterwards condemned in Westminster. He explained in Parliament that he did, in the first instance, regard the Austrian propositions as containing the possible basis of a satisfactory and lasting peace, but that as the government would not hear of them, he had rejected them, against his own judgment, and that he had afterwards been converted to the opinion of his colleagues and believed them inadmissible in principle. This was a sort of explanation more likely to alarm than to reassure the public. What manner of danger, it was asked on all sides, may we not be placed in, when our representatives do not know their own minds as to proper terms of peace, when they have no opinion of their own upon the subject, but are loud in approval of certain conditions one day, which they are equally loud in condemning the next. There was a general impression throughout England that some of our statesmen in office had never been sincerely in favor of the war from the first, that even still they were cold, doubtful, and half-hearted about it, and that the honor of the country was not safe in such hands. The popular instinct, whether it was right as to facts or not, was perfectly sound as to inferences. We may honor in many instances, we must honor, The conscientious scruples of a public man who distrusts the objects and has no faith in the results of some war in which his people are engaged. But such a man has no business in the government which has the conduct of the war. The men who are to carry on a war must have no doubt of its rightfulness of purpose and must not be eager to conclude it on any terms. In the very interests of peace itself, they must be resolute to carry on the war until it has reached the end they sought for. Lord John Russell's remaining in office after these disclosures was practically impossible. Sir E. B. Lytton gave notice of a direct vote of censure on the minister charged with the negotiations at Vienna. But Russell anticipated the certain effect of a vote in the House of Commons by resigning his office. This step, at least, extricated his colleagues from any share in the censure although the recriminations that passed on the occasion in Parliament were many and bitter. The vote of censure was, however, withdrawn. Sir William Molesworth, one of the most distinguished of the school, who were since called philosophical radicals, succeeded him as colonial secretary, and the ministry carried one or two triumphant votes against Mr. Disraeli, Mr. Roebuck, and other opponents, or at least unfriendly critics. Meanwhile, the Emperor of the French and his wife had paid a visit to London and had been received with considerable enthusiasm. The Queen seems to have been very favorably impressed by the Emperor. She sincerely admired him and believed in his desire to maintain peace as far as possible and to do his best for the promotion of liberal principles and sound economic doctrines throughout Europe. The beauty and grace of the Empress likewise won over Queen Victoria the prince-consort seems to have been less impressed. He was indeed a believer in the sincerity and good disposition of the emperor, but he found him strangely ignorant on most subjects, even the modern political history of England and France. During the visit of the royal family of England to France, and now while the emperor and empress were in London, the same impression appears to have been left in the mind of the prince-consort. He also seems to have noticed a certain barrack-room flavor about the emperor's entourage, which was not agreeable to his own ideas of dignity and refinement. The prince consort appears to have judged the emperor almost exactly as we know now that Prince Bismarck did then, and as impartial opinion has judged him everywhere in Europe since that time. The operations in the Crimea were renewed with some vigor, the English army lost much by the death of its brave and manly commander-in-chief, Lord Raglan. He was succeeded by General Simpson, who had recently been sent out to the Crimea as chief of the staff, and whose administration during the short time that he held the command was at least well qualified to keep Lord Raglan's memory green, and to prevent the regret for his death from losing any of its keenness. The French army had lost its first commander long ago, the versatile, reckless, brilliant soldier of fortune, Saint-Arnaud, whose broken health had from the opening of the campaign prevented him from displaying any of the qualities which his earlier career gave men reason to look for under his command. After Saint-Arnaud's death, the command was transferred for a while to General Canrobert, who, finding himself hardly equal to the task, resigned it in favor of General pellicier The Sardinian contingent had arrived, and had given admirable proof of his courage and discipline. On August 16, 1855, the Russians, under General Leprandi, made a desperate effort to raise the siege of Sebastopol by an attack on the Allied forces. The attack was skillfully planned during the night, and was made in great strength. The French divisions had to bear the principal weight of the attack, but the Sardinian contingent also had a prominent place in the resistance, and bore themselves with splendid bravery and success the attempt of the russians was completely foiled and all northern italy was thrown into wild delight by the news that the flag of piedmont had been carried to victory over the troops of one great european power and side by side with those of two others the unanimous voice of the country now approved and acclaimed the policy of cavour which had been sanctioned only by a very narrow majority Had been denounced from all sides as reckless and senseless, and had been carried out in the face of the most tremendous difficulties. It was the first great illustration of Cavour's habitual policy of blended audacity and cool, far seeing judgment. It is a curious fact that the suggestion to send Sardinian troops to the Crimea did not originate in Cavour's own busy brain. The first thought of it came up in the mind of a woman, Cavour's niece. The great statesman was struck with the idea from the moment when she suggested it. He thought it over deeply, resolved to adopt it, and carried it to triumphant success. End of Section 25